Do you want to go deeper in your faith even while you're on the go? No matter how busy the season you're in, Access More has a library of faith-based podcasts to help you grow spiritually with podcasts from Christian thought leaders such as Christine Kane, Lisa Harper, Taryn Wells, and Bob Goff. You can hear podcasts on religion, culture, family, entertainment, and so much more. Access More gives you a safe space to find inspiring conversations about faith. Start listening today at accessmore.com or the Access More app. You know, I had a philosophy, which is I don't recommend anybody use my philosophy, is I did what I want when I wanted, however I wanted. That's just how I live my life. I just was so self-absorbed. As much as I love my family, and you'll hear more stories about that, I, I loved me more than, than anybody else. And that was, I was just self-serving and so, so self-centered. And I think about it today and I get nauseated from just thinking that I could have been that person. And I thank God that it's never too late for a new beginning. Fitness and wellness expert, naturopath, and adventure enthusiast, Wendy Pett. And my husband, Todd Isburner. He's a fundraising guru, men's mentor, and Bible scholar. And as a couple, we're going to share riveting breakthrough stories from our guests who've experienced the meaning of a changed life. Our hope is that you will be inspired, equipped, and entertained along your own life journey. So lean in, listen well. This could be your biggest breakthrough. Your biggest breakthrough. This is Wendy Pett and Todd Isburner. And we are absolutely blessed out of our socks to bring you a special guest today with a story that you have never heard before. I guarantee you have never run into somebody like you're going to hear from in just a few minutes. I'm giddy. I really am. I I am too. But (laughs) here's the reality everyone loves hearing, you know, about someone's story where they had a real turnaround, like a 180 turnaround in their life. and, And it starts to take that person a whole new direction in life. And, uh, you know, some might feel like they're too stuck in a place that seems, you know, somewhat impossible. And they, they're not sure, can I really have any hope that I can get out of this? Can something really, truly change? Uh, or has God given up on me and everybody else, too? Mm. And I know that went through uh, the mind of our, of our special guest. We're going to hear more about that. Because you're about to hear from a man who... Uh, in a in a sort of a real sense, was knocked off his high horse, <laughs> flattened out on the ground, was confronted with the living God, and then given a new choice in life. Truly transformed, our guest Robert Borelli had a complete turnaround in his life. That's going to surprise you and encourage you. Yeah, Robert Borelli. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, in 1954, in the middle of the Gambino crime family neighborhood. As Wait, the, you go, Gambino. That's a familiar name. Exactly. Yeah. Like mafia stuff. This like, is like big deal. Keep like, going. Okay. As a young boy, he quickly built a reputation as a little tough guy. Surrounded by real tough guys, he began working for the for the Gambinos at age 14. Wow. Can you imagine age 14 by 20? He had two murder raps and numerous arrests under his belt. He uh, was being paraded around the neighborhood as the up and coming star of the feared Gambino family, the same family, which John Gotti would eventually bring into the mainstream media and make a household name. I know you've heard that name, John Gotti, right? Over the next 20 years, Robert fell hard into the um, mafioso lifestyle, which involved money, crime, and drug addiction. In 1997, as a 44-year-old man, he found himself in jail, looking to serve 10 to 20 years. With over 130 criminal indictments against his name, it was obvious he had become a career criminal. With no help from the mob or his friends, life seemed hopeless. Little did he know his story had just begun. In jail, Mr. Borelli found redemption, and a second chance. You know what's really fascinating to me what? is this sounds like uh, like somebody in the movies, movie. but this is the real. I love deal. these <laughs> movies, and we watch those kind of movies all the time. There's such a mystique. Robert, about it. come on in, man. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for taking time today. Well, thank you for allowing me to be on your show. I do appreciate it. Absolutely. Oh, listen to that accent. I, I mean, mean, I already just wanted. <laughs> you got to be gesturing with your hand when you talk like that. Well, I can say, forget about it. <laughs> Man, oh I, love man. It. I feel now, like we need that music, he, he, the gangster yeah, exactly, music. Anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah, very cool. Well, here's what's kind of funny, too, mm-hmm. is uh, Robert is living in Texas. Yeah. Imagine what, I mean, I'm a Texan, so I'm I just, I'm sure you get hit all the time with people on the street going, uh, dude, where are you from? You're not from around <laughs> here, are you? <laughs> 
Yeah, actually, some people want to know what country I'm from. <laughs> oh, seriously? Yeah, yes, yes. Well, you know, well, Texas is its own country within itself, so they assume everything else outside Texas is another country. Well, at least they're not asking <laughs> what planet you're from, right? Although you, you, you are a strange one, I got to say, and we're, I'm, we're anxious strange, to get into the story. Strange good. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, Robert, let's go on a journey with you. Let's go back to the beginning of where you grew up what life was like as a child, the neighborhood you grew up in, and then how how things started to go the wrong direction in life. Start laying it out there in front of us. Okay, well, as you said earlier, grew up in a neighborhood that was Gambino crime family run neighborhood. Uh, had like three types of people that I could have identified with at an early age. Of course, the first was my family, my parents, hardworking people, had a very hard time making ends meet. Most of the arguments I would hear from my mom and dad inside the family would be financial problems, five kids, you know, which had, they had struggles. So at an early age, that's not, I didn't want to be, you know, they had moderate jobs. So I didn't want look that to be something that I would want to become. And then you had back in the sixties, you had People coming back from, I believe it was the Korean War or the Vietnam War. Yeah. And they were coming back drugged up and, yeah. and, and drinking. I mean, they had a lot of problems coming back from the, the war. And they would be in the streets hanging out and either drinking or shooting up drugs. And I didn't want to be like them. And then you had the guys that had these social clubs. And they kind of got all the respect from everybody in the neighborhood. I mean, even police officers showed these guys respect. And, and there was a mutual respect. Hmm. So... You got to understand the neighborhood that I'm from is now it's kind of like I wouldn't say dirt poor, but we were we were unf poor people. We, we weren't well off. Let's put it that way. So for them, for my parents and stuff like you, we didn't have uh, numbers at, at, like we have today or horse racing, OTB and mm -hmm. stuff. So people who wanted to try to get a couple of extra dollars would play a number or something like that, that these guys would take or horse betting that they would take, or sports that they would take. And people did that with these guys. So these guys got just a lot of respect, and everybody in the neighborhood loved them. But more important than that is that they took care of the neighborhood. They watched the neighborhood, mm -hmm. made sure that no trouble came into the neighborhood. So that was something that I looked up to. So at an early age, I started getting involved with them. So I had some problems in school at a young yes, age. But you're, so now, how how old are you? You were, um, and what what's your birth order in the family? Where do you fit into with your siblings? I am the second youngest. Second youngest. Okay. Yeah. Now, were your were your brothers and sisters also making the same observations as you were? Like, wow, there's some crazy people in the streets, and there's also these guys that have a lot of respect. Well, I, I believe that they did. I mean, my 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 parents. Uh, I mean, we just knew each other. The neighborhood was the neighborhood, you know. Tight. Yeah. And it's really hard to explain how the neighborhood was. You know, it was just everybody was close with one another. And you know, I mm. could tell you a couple mm. of stories that uh, we had some. We used to leave our windows open, our doors open. We didn't have air conditioning, and some of us couldn't even afford fans. So we would sleep out. Some of us would sleep on the fire escape just to be a cool night. You know, wow. put a, a blanket and, and a pillow out there. Uh, so once a couple of times, somebody was getting burglarized when they weren't home. And to make a long story short, eventually that guy ended up falling off one of the roofs. Whoa. And there was no more burglaries in the neighborhood. By Whoa. quote unquote accident, right? Yes. It's, uh -huh. Well, that's what they said. He fell. <laughs> But, but that's oh kind of gosh. how they protected the neighborhood. They looked after everybody that was in the neighborhood and they were well-respected. I mean, they dressed nice. They, they, they looked real nice. They had, you know, nice jewelry on, nice car. These are things that at a young age, I Where didn't see. Yeah, I was infatuated with that lifestyle. And, and you know, and then you have to remember back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, you had a lot of gangster movies out in them days. You know, you had Rob Edward G. Robinson, uh, James Cagney, you know, all those kind of shows coming on. Uh, you had The Little Rascals, you know, all those things. Now, I can't say everybody in my neighborhood emulated those people, but I was the one that did. I liked that kind of life. Yeah. That, so, you know what? To put a pin in that, the power of media, right? Even, well, uh, you know, just TV shows and programs and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I... It had a big effect on me. It doesn't mean everybody in my neighborhood turned out like I did. 
but it did have a, a big impact on my life when I was watching those shows. You know, everybody rooted for the bad guy. Nobody was rooting for the cops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for you, I mean, normal was so much different than so many people growing up. And it wasn't by your choice. It's just this is the family you grew up in. This was the neighborhood that you grew up in. These were the people that surrounded you. And so that obviously had to rub off on you. So tell us what was what was it that started to attract you to the to the lifestyle and the and the actions of what these um, somewhat I guess you'd you'd look at them as reputable people in your neighborhood, and at the same time they were doing things that weren't so reputable. reputable. <laughs> well, you know, you didn't hear about that. You know, there were guys back in them days. It wasn't most, a lot of shootings. It was nothing like that. Really, these were guys that took numbers. Took off track, uh, you know, like I said off track betting was around, but took horse bets or sports bets. They had little clubs. They made a couple of dollars. They weren't, the drugs weren't really big in them days, as far as I knew, you know, growing up. So it was just a different concept of, of how the mob is today, yeah. back in them days. So they, you didn't see a lot of that, you know, you didn't hear yeah. about them going to prison or getting a lot yeah. of time or anything right. like that. So when you were um, 14 and you kind of started getting into that space, um, were you being groomed, so to speak, at that um, time frame? Uh, were you under someone's wing um, to be groomed to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was the story? Well, yeah. How do I ask that question? Just, yeah. It's like being discipled. Right, right. In a different way. <laughs> right. In the wrong way. You yeah. got yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you looked yeah. up to them well, because actually, you. Yeah. I mean, I was a fighter. I was a guy that didn't mm. like, I was small, short. I didn't, I mean, we didn't know about bullying. We didn't use that, but you got picked on. But you, got, when you yeah. were a shorter guy. So I had to fight my way around. But the thing with me was I didn't like to lose any fights. So I even the odds up, I would pick up a stick or something and I would even it out. They were a little bit taller than me. I, I felt the stick made me a little bit taller or stronger anyway. So I got that kind of reputation even as a young kid. And these guys would see some of that stuff and they took a liking to that, mm. you know. So what I started with them was just going to stores. I mean, I, I, I mean, it might sound stupid, but I, I, I tell the story sometimes this way is my first chore that they gave me to do. They gave me 25 cents and they, there was a candy store right next to the club. They said, go in there and get us a bucket of steam. Now, I did not know that you can't buy a bucket of steam. So I <laughs> I'm like, what is a bucket of yeah, steam? You grabbed my attention. I'm thinking, I never, never bought it. Okay. <laughs> so I go in and the guy, the guy behind the counter, his name was Jerry. He gets very mad, an old Italian guy, and he chases me out of the store. So I go back to the guy. Now, I don't remember if they let me keep the quarter or not, but that's kind of like initiation kind of thing oh. that they would do when you, they liked you, you know? Yeah. So yeah. that was kind of So after that, I started, like, they would send me to pick up maybe policy numbers, you know, because people were betting from their houses, and they would write the number on the thing or the horse race on there, and I would go and pick up the slip with a couple of dollars. You are like a book bring it over kinda. to them. Like, yeah. I was more of a Bookie runner than runner. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Hmm. So, so that's kind of like how I started. So I started growing up that way. And then at the age of 17, my family finally moved out of that neighborhood and we moved into a, a little bit nicer neighborhood, still Brooklyn. And I ran into this guy who his dad happened to be one of the bosses in the neighborhood. I ran into his son and started hanging out with him. Um, and then that's when the reputations really started getting, and that's when I was really starting getting groomed into that lifestyle of what it was all about. Okay, it's almost like you you didn't have another choice because you didn't have another group to to sort of latch on to. The, again, these were people in your neighborhood; these were guys you looked up to who were successful. You obviously, at young age, wanted to be successful. In a sense, you were recruited, but but the next step was a little bit deeper for you and likely you didn't know that you were about to get into some things that would take you completely down the wrong path. I, well, I, I didn't, let's just put it this way. I, I didn't think about it. I, I you know, yeah. one of the things that I, I try to talk with young kids is consequential thinking. That's mm -hmm. the thing I liked. I didn't think about consequences. I was a, a type of guy. If you told me what to do, I just did it. I didn't think about the consequences. As a matter of fact, the first guy that started grooming me, that was the first thing that he told me is he said, whatever I ask you to do, don't ask why just do it. Mm. Interesting. And, and, and that's just how I lived, you know? Well, and with a young uh, 
Man, the frontal lobe isn't even formed yet. So really, you don't even understand consequences anyway until you're about 24, 25 years old. <laughs> Didn't so, work then neither. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you're living in the present moment. And yeah. uh, all you know is that you're needed and you're useful and you kept going. So yep. progress, oh, good. progress the journey a little bit. So about age 17 here, you're, you're hooked in with this other guy. And then where did it go from there? How did things progress? Well, what we did was he had a reputation as Fat Andy. This was this guy's name. We didn't call him Fat Andy to his face, but Fat Andy. that's who his name was. His name okay. was Fat Andy, and it was Fat Andy's son. So he got all the recognition. So when we uh -huh. went out, we would go to different bars. So if the, for any reason that anybody tried to disrespect him or one of us, there would be a bar fight. Mm -hmm. And that's just how our reputation started building up. But one things. of the things that that was that really infatuated me was that this guy's dad would have every Friday night a big dinner and people would come to have dinner with him and he would have a big table, a big spread, and his son would take me with him and I would sit down with all these guys, shop dress, real money making guys, giving this guy this respect, this fat Andy, giving him the respect yeah. and 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 honor that he I guess in that lifestyle, he really did deserve. And I was 17 years old sitting down with these guys at such a young age. So I was really caught up in the glamour of that, to be honest yeah. with you. That, yeah. that power and control uh, kind of that. Yeah. And also the money. The money. Right. right. Yeah. All goes I mean, together. there was big money being thrown around them. Yeah. Well, it must yeah. have gotten easier and easier for you to just do what they told you to do because you saw what the outcome would be for them. They're successful. They have money. Looks like they're, you know, they're they're living high on the hog. And uh, you're you're a young guy. You want to uh, move into that direction. So it's understandable why you probably said yes, even though there must have been times. Well, I don't. I shouldn't put that in your in your head. Just tell us. Were there ever times where you you really kind of doubted whether or not you were doing the right thing when they were telling you to do stuff that. Didn't seem to line no. up. I live by the street. These were the street rules, gotcha. you know, and, yeah. and a lot of people from the neighborhood live by street rules. Now, of course, mm. not everybody acted on them, but I mean, that was just kind of like yeah. how it was, you know, so I didn't see a difference. I, I didn't see anything outside of my little world that I was in, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. 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 And one of the guys, the first one of the guys, one time you told me we're coming out of a club. I never forget this. It was probably about maybe seven, eight in the morning from the night early playing cards and finally the game breaks up and I'm going outside. He comes out with me and there's people waiting for the bus to take them, I guess, to work. And he said, do you see these people? They're all suckers. Mm. They go to work and the government takes half their paycheck. Mm. So I thought those people, those legitimate people, the suckers, and mm. we were the real wise guys. Right. Yeah. Right. Huh. Did you know at the time that um, like this was organized crime, that this was mafia? I mean, was that term even thrown around? It, first of all, back in them days, it was never really even spoken about. I mean, today it is. But if somebody got straightened out, they weren't allowed to tell somebody that did it. The word straightened out means become a made member of whatever family you're part of. There was five families in New York. The family I was part of was Gambino crime family. Now, I never got made, I never got strained out, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but I was an associate to them, and that, mm. that's how it's good. So if you want to go through the ranks, you have a boss, you have an underboss, you have a consigliere, you have captains, you have soldiers, and then you wow. have associates. Wow. I Didn't never know knew that. that. I mean, that's why they, very call it organized. Organized. Yeah. they call it organized crime. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's All right. Interesting. So, now, you did talk about in, in the bio that you um, were involved with drug addiction. Um, so that, that came later on in life that, that came, came later, at, probably at, at a, I'd say about the age of about 27, 28 years old. Mm. Okay. And what were you addicted to? What was your drug of choice? Cocaine. Cocaine. Right. Right. I was going to guess that one. And then it came get worse. Then it was free basin. Mm. And then from free basin, it became crack cocaine, which was the cheaper high because I was losing everything. And I mm. went for the cheapest one. And the crack is what brought me to my knees. Wow. Well, that's what we want to talk about. Let's talk about that crack, um, because that is your your biggest breakthrough. Um, that that crack that brought you to your knees. And so let's let's talk about that moment. Um, we've got a good sense of of your history and what you've what you went through and uh, some of the choices. Although before uh, the crack, I guess uh, there was um, uh, murder. 
that it that it happened, correct? Or or um, um, arrested? At the age of seventeen, in one of these bar fights, somebody got killed, and and the police were looking for me. My friends that I told you, Fat Andy, was one that hid me out for about a year and a half. Wow. When I came back around, the first arrest that I got as an adult, because I was arrested as a kid, the first uh, uh, arrest as an adult, I was 20 years old, and was for two murders and possession of a weapon. Wow. Now, listen, and that you... was kind of my claim to fame in mm. that where everybody was parading me around because I stood in jail. I didn't open up my mouth. I did everything according to everything that they taught me and what we're supposed to do in case we get pinched. Mm which mm -hmm. means arrested. And I did all of that. And then finally, these guys did bail me out after a couple of months of laying up in jail. And then when they started parading me around as the up and coming star, they gave me no crime family. And that's when I started meeting bosses from all different families, including our own family. Wow. And I'm wow. only 20 years old. I was, I was, yeah, I was a legend in my own mind. That's how I look at it. Mm. You know? There's something about that, right? That um, wanting to be reputable, wanting to yeah, have yeah, that that yeah. status. But you can also get, I mean, you can get so quickly distorted in your mm -hmm. thinking because what's around you seems to be pretty normal. So for you, you weren't necessarily functioning uh, in any unusual way. You were just functioning in the way that that you, you were know. sort of, um, yeah, you were familiar with. So that's, that's why I want to ask you during any of those incidents, you know, and the crimes that you committed, the times you were arrested, were you able to think through there's right and there's wrong and what I did was wrong or was it more like there's right and there's wrong and everybody else is wrong is my right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's it right there. The latter one. Uh, <laughs> so, they were all nuts. I was the same one. <laughs> so no ego involved here at all. Right. There's no ego. <laughs> it's like you just didn't know anything different. Right. So what, what I I really didn't I didn't see it and 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 you know we we'll, as we go further on you you'll just be able to hear my experience of when the light finally did yeah yeah we when, want to get to there God right? completely moved the the veil no. from my face because I was thinking, blinded by that lifestyle and then the drugs of course and we'll talk yeah. about yeah. that but yeah. I don't want to get ahead of you guys but I think yeah. of so many other um, people that um, are listening maybe or maybe they know someone. Yeah that could relate to your story in the sense of maybe they're brought up in a certain neighborhood or a certain family. And then that's all they know. And you're going to, your story is just going to inspire and offer so much hope that you can break free and outside of, of the chaos and the, um, the unhealthy ways of living um, and start to see ways in, a, in, you know, your life in a new way. And so I just think that there's a lot of hope there, but um, do you want to talk about the breakthrough itself? The crack? I, I, wanna, I want to talk about the crack. Well, let's, let's <laughs> when he's have, on his knees. But, you know, listen, he's leading the journey. We got his hand. Okay. He's lead us now what, Robert? So now what? Take us to the next chapter <laughs> of the story. Well, well, just to clear up, I have an addictive personality. Mm. Okay. So it wasn't drugs. It was gambling. So mm. at a young age, I would be gambling. And then it was drinking. Training, and one for the next. Smoking cigarettes. You name it. Whatever I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I got very addicted to no matter how bad it was. And everybody's seen that kind of personality in me because even when I was with the wise guys, I mean, there's, I mean, if you read the book, you'll see when I just took a whole bankroll that they gave me to bring home and bring back the next day. And I just went to the track and lost it all. Wow. It was over, wow. over $10,000 back in the seventies. That was a lot of money. Yeah. So yeah. I had a very addictive. And once again, I didn't think of the consequences. I yeah. mean, I just did what I wanted to do. You know, I had a philosophy, which is I don't recommend anybody use my philosophy, is I did what I want when I wanted, however I wanted. That's just how I live my life. I just was so self-absorbed. As much as I love my family, and you'll hear more stories about that, I, I loved me more than, than anybody else. And that was I was just self-serving and so, so self-centered. It and I think about it today and I get nauseated from just thinking that I could have been that person. Sure. Yeah. And I thank God that it's never too late for a new beginning. That's right. the bottom line. It's never too late. And we're going to hear how that happened in your life in just a moment. But I want you to talk to um, maybe some parents for just a second who have got um, kids that are in a similar place in terms of they're addicted to something. 
they, they don't want to change their lifestyle or their habits. The parents are frustrated because they can see ahead of this child that they're going down a wrong road and it's going to lead to some bad things. Is there anything you can say to them to sort of help encourage or guide them in how they bring this? How do they, how do they continue to parent a child that is headed in that direction? Well, first, let me say most parents, like I'll take the experience with my parents were in denial that I had a a problem. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they could have done it, but they did. I mean, I was constantly always in trouble. Mm -hmm. So my mom would say, why are you always in trouble? And I say, it's because everybody bothers me. I was always somebody else's fault. It was never my fault. And I guess my mom had a concern and the love for me. She just enabled me in certain ways. It's, it's not until my mother, when I, and we'll go into that a little bit later on. It's not until everybody, everybody that I depended on all the time turned their back on me that my Mm -hmm. life started changing, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the key thing. So for parents, the hardest thing to do is because we want to love them. We want to, we want to be there for them. But a lot of times, you know, I could give you one experience for me. Uh, when I was praying for my daughter and I still pray for my daughter, I heard God say, if you want to keep praying to me, you need to get out of my way. Mm. You see, because every time something happened, it would be me to come go there to fix the problem. Yeah. And then she didn't have to rely on him because it was always me. And that's what happened to me in my yeah. life. It was always somebody. My mom was, was she loved me to death. Um, and, and according to my, my brothers and sisters, I was my mom's favorite. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of that is, but you see, the other thing, key thing that I seen in my life is I got more attention being bad than being good. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I think that's some of the problems we have is we don't encourage the good. We just take the good for granted when our kids are doing it and we pay more attention to the one that's doing bad. Not that they don't deserve that we shouldn't do that, but we need to also reward the ones that are doing good. And then the ones that are doing bad and you see that they're headed down a a, a road. Sometimes you just have to really get out of God's way and let them hit the bottom. And and that's the hardest thing to, I think for any parent to see their, their child hit bottom. Yeah, that tough love is difficult, but um, like you said, it, it can make a, a, a huge turnaround. Um, you know, mob or no mob being involved um, when when they're in when your children or someone you know is in a space of being self absorbed and all about what makes me happy and what's good for me. I mean that that's really where uh, the problem occurs. Is it's so inner, you know, me 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 focused as opposed to others. Um, and that's, that's the, the shift that, that needs to occur, that you're focusing on others. And then all of a sudden, all your stuff, all your problems tend to uh, not look so grandiose. And um, anyway, so, yeah. Well, those are good words of advice, though, for parents who are struggling with kids and they just feel like, I just don't know what to do. And uh, so you, I think you've given some encouragement here that mm-hmm. it's not a lost cause. And just like you said, too, it's never too late. So accelerate the story for us, Robert. You're in your 20s and your 30s. You're, you're living high on the hog. Uh, things are, are, are rolling all around you, seemingly going in the good direction, except you have become addicted to drugs. You're still doing crime. Were you aware that the actions that you were doing were actually crimes that you were committed, that you were committing? Well, the weird thing about it is, is when I started getting high, and I, well, first of all, it was social. When I started, like when they paraded me around back in 75, 76, 77, 78, and going to all these places, Manhattan, where all the big shots were hanging out, there was a, a dice game opened up. It's called Crap Games and wasn't uh, New York wasn't legal in New York. And I was making money doing that, but getting high socially because the guys that were in Manhattan that was their thing. They used mm-hmm. to like to drink and do cocaine. So I got involved with that kind of thing. And it gradually started getting the best of me. It took about maybe 10 years of social using uh, cocaine that finally started getting, uh, getting uh, bad for me. Mm-hmm. So, and everybody started seeing it happening. So one thing about me is when I disappoint people, I have a hard time letting them see me. So I run away. Mm-hmm. I, I was the guy that ran away from just about everything you can so when I started really getting bad with drugs, the crime stopped with me because I was afraid to get caught. Huh. Interesting. I didn't feel like I was in my right mind. I wasn't, uh, I was used to get very paranoid from, from the drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and so 
a lot of the crime stopped. I might do small things like maybe going to a store and shoplift just to give it to the crack dealer and get some more crack. But that was like later on. We're talking about probably like in 88, 89 is when I started really getting bad with the crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. So what happened that uh, led up to the, whatever it was, the incident where you got arrested and, and thrown in jail? I think, you, I think your bio says you were like age 44. Is that right? When you went to I was prison? actually 43, 43 okay. and a half when that yeah. happened. So yeah, what, was, yeah, what happened? What were the circumstances that led up to that? Well, every time I would clean up my act, the mob would come back. Like this one guy, Nicky, would come and cause he loved me. He was like my, my dad. He was my spiritual well, I wouldn't say spiritual. Mm-hmm. He was my my on that side of things. Of the one that discipled me in yeah, that yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. He Your would mentor. take me. And this is one thing I like to even explain because it was so powerful how I seen the way he discipled me was he would I would do everything with him. I would drive his car, drop him off, pick him up. I was if anybody wanted to know where this guy Nicky was, they had, they used to come and see me. Hmm. He gave me his car and I would take him all over the place. But he spent so much time grooming me. We would walk around the block and he would spend precious time just going around in circles walking and him talking and teaching me the lifestyle that I was really going to get involved with. And uh, I wish that we see a lot more that that kind of discipleship in, in, in our churches today, you know, yes, yes. not that way, but, but the way that we need to, because I think, you know, one, I remember one time having a conversation with somebody and, and they said, you know, talking to you is just like talking to Nikki. Mm. Mm. So you really took after him and he rubbed off on you in a big way and you could then rub off on others. And what I hear you saying is that can be a, that can be a very powerful thing when you're mentored by somebody, by the right person. But if it's mentoring in the wrong things, it's going to impact your life in a very bad way. If you're mentored in the good things, it's going to impact your life in a very good way. Mm-hmm. You are so right about that. People are being mentored all the time or are mentoring others. All right, so take us up to the arrest point. What happened when uh, when you got arrested and you're thrown in jail? Well, as I was saying, so every time I would come back, so I end up not by my choice, but the guys, I was a big embarrassment from. I was hanging out in the streets, getting high on, on Rockway Boulevard in Queens. And uh, I was embarrassing Nikki and all these guys that used to tout me around and promote me. And um, finally, that some of them got a message to me. My mom had just moved to Florida. They said, you need to go. And when they say you need to go, they're not really asking you. They're telling <laughs> you you need to go. Yeah. So. And they got me a plane ticket and I went and moved to Florida. So I cleaned up my act, started doing some a legitimate job there. So Nikki comes down and he has something going on and he brings me and I get involved with them. And then I leave the job and I'm doing stuff for them in Florida. And before you know it, I'm back using the drugs again. So it seemed like every time I got everything back together again, I got back into drugs again. So I don't know if I was running away from the reality of what I was doing. I'm not sure what was going on in my head, but it just seemed that was kind of the pattern. I got everything back, back on drugs again. Got everything back, back on drugs again. But the lifestyle I live was, of course, a criminal lifestyle. And that's the only lifestyle that I really knew. So that case was going on. And then I went back to New York because my mom said, you can't stay here. I, I I love you, but you can't stay here. You need to go into a rehab. I have friends that own some rehab centers or big, big people in rehab centers. They can get me right in. And before long, I was getting back high in, in New York again and mm. got arrested for selling crack cocaine to an undercover. Mm. And then I got bailed out. These guys bailed me out. And okay. then I didn't get, go back to court because the federal government was looking for me for something that happened in Florida. So long story short, I call on my two angels and they didn't have halos and they didn't have any wings. They had guns. <laughs> I passed out of somebody's house from being up for probably about a week and a half on crack cocaine. And I got a tap on the foot and there was warrant officers. They finally caught up with me. Somebody told them where I was, obviously. And they told me I was under arrest and I was brought to Rikers Island. And um, that's that was the whole thing. And. And the reason why I called on my angels because that's the last time I did a drink, a drug, mm. and even smoked a cigarette. So, mm. um, what were you charged with, and what was the sentence? I was charged with a RICO Act from Florida, which is uh, organized crime mm. RICO Act. I forget what they were: racketeering, enterprise, corruption, organization, something like that. That yeah. stands for. 
the reason why they put that on is even if it's a small crime, they could give you a lot of time for it. So I was facing a lot of time in Florida. Mm-hmm. And then New York, I was facing whatever it was for the drug charges. <clears throat> and uh, of course, whenever I get locked up, and I've been in and out of prisons and jails numerous times, probably from 1975 all the way to 1997, mm-hmm. uh, actually 99 when I finally did get out. But anyway, so I have a routine that I do. And I first I call up to try to get money for a good attorney to get me out of the mess that I got myself into. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is to get commissary money, money that I could live as comfortable as possible. And I buy cigarettes, whatever it is that I wanted at that point in time while I was incarcerated. And everybody I was calling up was telling me no. Then finally, I think the last straw was my mom said, I think you're better off where you are. And that was mm-hmm. kind of like the lowest point in life that when everybody that you loved or loved you thought that you were better off in jail than out in the streets. Yeah. My daughter's mother, because my, my daughter was born in 93 when I started getting high again. My daughter's mother wouldn't let me see my daughter again. I walked out of her life when she was seven weeks old to get high again. But I was allowed to call them when I was in jail. So that was another thing that I, when I was out on the street, they didn't want me near her. But now I'm in jail. I could talk to her. Mm-hmm. And then calling up somebody and they told me to go read the Bible. And I just put it as a brush off. You know, we're going to find commissary money or an attorney in the Bible. And then calling <laughs> up my daughter spontaneously, calling her. She was crying. And I said, Brianna, that's her name. I said, why are you crying? She said, because she won't come and see me. If I could have had drugs or alcohol or something to numb the pain, I would have ran that way. Sure. So now I'm incarcerated and I can't have no place to run. And those words are just pictured in my head how many times I was out in the street and I'd rather get high than see my own daughter. And that kind of broke, shattered my heart. So how I was raised was Brian- Catholic. Go ahead. I'm sorry. How old was Brianna when she Brianna was, cr- was three, three and a half years old? Oh, yeah. So I slammed down the phone. I didn't want the inmates to see me crying. I ran back to my cell. And I said, I knew about God. I was raised Roman Catholic. Not saying all Roman Catholics don't know God, but I didn't know him. I just knew about him. Yeah, yeah. I ran back to my cell and I just cried. I think the greatest prayer, the strongest prayer I could ever pray was, God, please help me. Please help me. I either have somebody kill me or change me because I can't live Mm. like this. The pain was that great. Mm. So um, anyway, uh, I, I believe God answered that prayer because I'm here today. Nobody killed me. And, <laughs> uh, and he started changing my life. Well, you so, were, you were feeling obviously yeah. completely abandoned by family and friends, nobody to bail you out on this one. You were all alone, heartbroken over your daughter. And it is, it's now just, it's you and God. And you had to make the decision. If God exists, would he be willing to help me? And did you believe that God was going to reach out and help you? And, and if so, what? Well, that was my cry for sure. Yeah. I didn't know how he was going to do it. I didn't yeah. know how it was going to be all together. Uh, at the same time, I was still calling my mom, and my mom had told me that these um, <clears throat> FBI agent kept coming around in Florida because I had the case mm-hmm. in Florida hounding her, and I asked her for the phone number. And I'd like to say it's a spiritual thing, and I still believe it's spiritual, even though I didn't act on it as a spiritual matter is that I felt everybody was abandoning me. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to become the person I wanted to be in the Gambino crime family because my drug addiction already destroyed that. I would get little things to do, but never where I wanted to go. And that wasn't good enough for me. And then I was afraid that how many times I came in and out of jail and got back on drugs. Yeah, right. So I, I seemed p- completely hopeless at that point in time. And the government, when I called up and that number, they gave me an offer that I couldn't refuse mm. or that I don't think I should have refused. But, you know, sometimes God speaks to you in the language. You can understand them. And uh, they said, listen, if you help us, we'll, we'll give you a new life and mm-hmm. uh, place you in the witness protection program. And uh, we'll try to get you a new start in life. And I thought that was the best option that I had at that point in time. Wow. I could see God's hand in it. At that point in time, he might have used the government yeah. or might have even used my way of thinking just to get a new fresh start, a new yeah. life. But uh, I think it was also the spiritual rebirth at the same time. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm. I mean, you even got a new name. I got a new name. I got right. a new social security number. I got a new identity. Yeah, and like, I like to collaborate that. Well, I, I, I compare that to the born again experience because actually it. when I came out of jail in 99, that's when I got the new identity. Mm-hmm. 
and God already did something and gave me a new identity spiritual. So it's kind of being born again. Actually, I was really born again. I mean, Robert Engel doesn't live anymore. Mm. Robert Borelli does. Wow. And, you know, it's funny how I got that name. And I like to share that. This is a little amusing is like when I came out of jail, the marshals pick you up and they bring you to a place. And I don't know exactly where I was, but they have to uh, analyze you and try to see where you fit in and where they can put place you where nobody's going to know yet. And I don't know how they do all that, but they said you could keep your first name, but you have to change your last name. And uh, they would come in and I would give them a last name and they would say, no, that's no good. And that happened two or three times. <laughs> and I happened to be watching the show of MASH. <clears throat> uh -huh. And in MASH, there's this doctor that from out of, out of their unit, he comes into their unit. He's a heart transplant doctor yep. and they need him to do emergency surgery. And his name is Borelli, Dr. That's Borelli. Yep. So when they came in, I said, Borelli. And they said, yeah, okay, that's your name now. So I got the <laughs> name Borelli. Yeah, but it really fits you pretty well, man. I'm telling you. I mean, well, I should have said Dr. Borelli. Maybe well, that'd be better. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, yeah, exactly. Why not? I love that. I mean, new name, new, new spiritual life. I mean, everything all new. How did you start then the, uh, to nurture the relationship with God? How did that begin and where did it lead to? What happened before I went into the witness protection program, I was still had to do time. So I was in, in Sandstone, Minnesota. Oh. Uh, actually, you can see God saying, I'm going to probably do another book just being led by the spirit. because mm. It's definitely the spirit of God moving me because I have no control. Yeah. When you're in jail, you have no control where you're going or what you're doing. So I, I, I'm thinking I'm going to do that. But I'm hoping and praying that God to give me the resources to be able to do something like that. Because I think it's very interesting how God through his Holy Spirit was just leading me and directing me. Like from Rikers Island, I started reading the Bible. That girl said, get the Bible and read. I started reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. Then I got shipped out and I went to, to uh, Miami Dade County jail. I was, you think you, you know, you would think that you're okay. You're working with the government. You have Jesus in your life. Things are going to get easier. Well, it didn't work <laughs> out that way. Mm -hmm. I was in 24 hour, 23 hour lockup when mm -hmm. I went to Miami Dade County, but I had a TV in the cell and I will just, pour out my life. I mean, I was chasing Jesus the way I used to chase crack cocaine out in the streets. That's a good addiction. I uh, was shift, so, <laughs> so I wanted to know so much more about it. Yeah. So when I had the TV, whatever, I didn't watch anything but a, a Christian show, no matter who mm. it was. Some mm. of them I don't follow anymore, but I didn't, I just needed to get God's word. So that's what I did. And I had the Bible and I was reading the Bible. So I had a lot of time to spend with God. Yeah. So then I get shipped out of there because people find out where I am. I go to another place mm. and they have two Bible studies a week. So I start going to them. I get baptized September 9th, 1997. I get baptized mm. in prison all over wow. again because I was baptized Beautiful. as a baby. Yeah. So I get baptized there and then they ship me out and I wound up in Sandstone, Minnesota. And now there's a whole bunch of group of nine of us that praying every night. So it was just God moving me around, just, just falling in love with Jesus more and more. And, and, uh, when I was in Sandstone, Minnesota, one of the guys would say to me, you're only doing this here because you're in jail, you're in prison. Once you get out, back out, you're going to chase after the girls, the drugs, the drinking and all that. You're going to still look to party. So I didn't understand the fullness of being born again, to be honest with you. So it scared me enough that 60 days before I was supposed to get released, because they let you know about 90 days before what your release date is going to be. And I will put the Bible on the floor. Now, there's nothing super spiritual about it, so I'm not trying to express that. I think God is honoring the desire of my heart. Sure. I put my, I lay it down on the floor. I would lay on the floor, put my head in it, and I would pray, mm. God, let your word penetrate my mind that I never forget your word. Mm. And then I would move up and place my heart into the Bible. Wow. And I would say, God, let your word penetrate my heart. Let your spirit fill my heart that I never, I never forget your dishonor you. Mm. And um, that's just, that was my spiritual birth. I, I mean, I, I just, I think about it today. I could cry all over again about it because it's what God has done for me. It was just amazing. He gave me a whole new beginning, a whole new life. And I'm forever grateful. You know, they say those who forgive much will love much, you know. Yeah. And I, I and people hear my story and they say, well, wow, you really need to get saved. And my answer to them is, so did you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> the beauty is God is a God of second chances, third chances, uh, you know, 
a million chances. He is after us and he was after you, Robert. And I, I love that um, you surrendered uh, to him. And, and that, that's, that's the whole reason we're here, right? Is, is so that, that we can bring him glory and we can have a relationship with him and, and your story. Um, I mean, no offense, I don't think you'll be offended, but if you can get saved, anybody can get saved kind of thing. Right. So yeah. the power of your story, I mean, it's huge. Well, I, I'm, uh, I'm amazed just at you have a, you have a passion and a drive in you when you get a hold of something, it's like, you don't let go. Uh, that was true in your life of crime and drugs. You didn't let go. You you were pretty determined to do it your way. And then God gets a hold of you. And I love that he used that strong determination in you and he turned it towards himself. See, you seem so doggedly determined to know God better and to become intimate with him and to know his heart. And you can see the results of that in your life now. It's like uh, you're you're uncompromising when it comes to proclaiming the name of Jesus. It's what we love about you, Robert. You're, you know, you're a former tough guy from the mafia now to Christian ministry and, and you give all the credit to what God did in your life. And that needs to be true for every single one of us, not mm -hmm. to take the credit, but to give God the credit for leading us and guiding us and strengthening us and changing us like he did with you. Yeah. Amen. Amen. That's, you know, the ministries that I first got, because my mom passed away when I was in the witness protection program. I didn't know she passed away until three days after she had passed away. And I wasn't allowed to go to her funeral. So that broke my heart because, you know, I yeah. cried out to God. I said, you know, Lord, I mean, if anybody needed this, an agape love is a whole different concept of any other mm -hmm. kind of love. When, yes. when Jesus fills you with his love, it changes everything in your life. And I said, if anybody needed that change in my life, it would be my mom. I needed to pour out that love. And I don't understand why you took her home. I did. My mom did get saved through me ministering to her in prison. And then somebody else come alongside of her. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the story behind that is that uh, when I cried out to God like that, I didn't get an answer for a couple of days. Um, and then finally he said, my church that I was a part of in San Antonio, Texas. That's where I got transferred from when I got out of witness protection program. You know, it's kind of like God was giving me a taste of Abraham. He's going to send me to a foreign land and going from New York to Texas is a foreign <laughs> land. But anyway, so they were doing nursing home ministry and they would ask me to come and I would deny it all the time. But God spoke to me and said, the love that you wanted to give your mom, you could give to these people in these nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And I did nursing home ministry for 13 years before I did any, any other type of ministry. Wow. And I did it there. I did it in Dallas where I'm living. And then only a few years ago that I gave that up to somebody else that came alongside and I groomed him and he's doing it now. And I felt God was telling me to go out and share my story. And mm -hmm. then he used my wife. My wife said, you know what? You're not in the witness protection program anymore. Let's, let's tell your story, get yourself out there, bring hope into people. So I love to speak to young kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in, I was in Minnesota not too long ago, saying that a couple of years ago in St. Andrew's church. And I ended up speaking to about 350 of the youth there That's uh, so cool. and just to encourage them. And, you know, the thing that I, I use with them, and, and this is just something that I did some kind of research years, years back. And, and it was something like what the average person makes about 1200 decisions a day. Mm. That might've changed since then. And I thought about how many decisions I made throughout my lifetime. It comes over to 10 million, over 10 million decisions. And I said, there's one decision that I made that changed the outcome of 12 million decisions. And that was when I surrendered my life to Christ. Mm. And that's what I want to encourage young kids to do, man. They don't have to go through what I went through to get to where I am. Yes. I like to inform them about the shortcut. His name is Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. That is so well it, said. Yeah, that is the one main decision. That's the one that counts. That's the one that changes everything else. You are a, you're a real trophy of God's grace, if I could put it that way. And that conversion was so real and so deep. And we just love seeing your you know, your heart and your passion and your enthusiasm now for and sharing Jesus with others. And you're so humble. And I, I well, don't give him a big head tell him that now. No, Come on. but he is. You're just very <laughs> humble through, uh, through it all because yeah. you, you don't have to be, but you know, it's, it's by God's grace mm -hmm. and no other way. So it's beautiful. Robert, there, uh, there are people who probably want to learn a little bit more about you and uh, what's the best way to find you. You've got a website. I have a website called robertborelli.com. They can go on there. There's any, any message that they put on there, as long as they let me know what it is that they, they're looking for, 
uh, they could have my phone number, 214-235-2244. They wow. could put that. They could call me up personally. Wow. I love talking with people. Wow. Uh, I, I, I'm involved with a lot of things right now. So uh, we started working with a church with the homeless right now. So we're trying to get donations. We might be doing a... Um, trying to think the YouTube kind of thing to try to see mm. if we get people to partner up with us yeah. to get okay. the message out there. So, um, and you have a way book. they want to get in touch with me. Yeah. And you have a book called, called the witness, witness. Yeah. but let me just say this about the mm. book. It's very important that the mm. book was not written by me. I didn't put any letters in that book. I just did the interviews. H Scott hunt did everything with the book. He published it. He put the cover on it. He, wrote the book. He did everything from the book. Mm. I get the credit for being the co-author because it's about my story. So the witness, I think it's a great book. I really do. And of course I'm going to be maybe as humble and not as humble as you just said. I was. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, get the book, get the book. You'll enjoy the story. I I like to get the book. And then then I'm hoping that I can do something, something more. So, but I love going to churches and speaking. So they can go on the website, uh, email me from there, anything that they want to do, call me up. Give me their number. I'll call them up. I just love talking and helping people. That's just that's just who I am, you know? Beautiful. Uh, you are it's not what I do, who I am. It's who I am is what I do. There you oh, go. Oh, wait. Yeah, do that one more time. Say one more time. It. I got to hear that again. Do that. Say that again. It, it's who I am is what I do, not what I do is not who I am. That's so, so true. good. You Robert. are a precious human being, and we are so honored that we got to spend this time with you. Thank you for sharing your story and everyone listening. Hey, you have his phone number, so give him a call. (laughs) Anybody, it's out there. Robert Robert is a real deal. And if you want to know Jesus more about Jesus, you talk to this man because he knows Jesus pretty, pretty well. Yeah. Robert, you're a blessing, man. We really appreciate you taking time today. We know that God is going to continue to use you in uh, in, in ways that you're on. Yeah, you, you come back. You yeah. come back. And I might see need us. your guys' help. You have All right. churches out there that want to hear a good message? Oh, yeah. We know a few, so we'll stay in touch. So. Anybody who knows <laughs> to talk about Jesus because he knows Jesus personally is That's worth right. listening to. So That's thank right. you. Very so much. thank you for being on. And yeah. thank you, uh, all of you that are listening to yeah. Your Biggest Breakthrough. And we'll catch you on the next episode. And remember, it's never too late for a new beginning. Amen. Well, that's a wrap for today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, we love spending time with you right here on Your Biggest Breakthrough Podcast. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. But until then, just head on over to yourbiggestbreakthrough.com where you'll find some free resources and information and a place where you can comment. And we would love to dialogue with you there. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.